Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have with us John Yu. And joining us from Texas, Curtis. We have Curtis from his palatial estate. <laughs> and I'm in frozen California. I had to put a long sleeve shirt on today. And uh, I'm in Southern California. John, you're in Northern Cal or actually Central Bay Area, California, right? Yep. I'm in uh, Marin County right now. All right. Nice. Thank you for joining us this morning, John. Welcome. Hey. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Great to meet you and uh, join your podcast. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. This is great. We wanted to have John on to talk about his latest book. I believe it's your latest book, right, John? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's called Defender in Chief. I'm trying to... The Golden Gate Bridge is uh, blocking your book, John. <laughs> We'll Somehow the, we'll the Chinese have managed to keep uh, <laughs> blocking out Trump's picture on the book cover. That's that's interesting. Not, that's not surprising to me at all. Um, Technology. Yeah. <laughs> Defender in chief. And the subtitle is Donald Trump's fight for presidential power. Um, this is a book about looking at public law, the, the constitutional law of presidential power basically, and an analysis of how Trump, how we can understand the presidency of Trump from that perspective. And so John has a wonderful background to, in order to write this book. His academic background is in law. He teaches law at the people, democratic people's Republic. I'm sorry. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the University of California at Berkeley. <laughs> and uh, I just learned just before recording that he's been there almost 30 years. I can, I was surprised. I know he'd been there a long time, but 30 years. Um, so we, uh, we wanted to start this by talking about, well, first of all, I like to ask you, John, how did you come up with the idea for this book? Because, my understanding, I think I got this from the book. My understanding is that you didn't vote for President Trump initially in 2016, or you didn't, you weren't that excited about him? No, I was not a supporter of his at all. In fact, I wrote an op-ed with my um, good friend, uh, also Republican professor, uh, Jeremy Rabkin mm -hmm. at George Mason University, uh, saying that, uh, we liked all of Trump's uh, proposals for policy during the campaign, but that we just didn't know anything about his personality and his character, which is all important when it comes to crises and foreign affairs. Sure. And so we thought uh, that it was just too, he was too much, uh, it was too unreliable. Uh, and so we, I didn't support him. Um, but then, so part of the book was, uh, I just got drawn in and probably like everybody was um, thinking and commenting about all the things Trump was doing, <laughs> you know, every day he was exploring the nooks and crannies of the constitution and he would say outrageous things. Uh, but when you step back, I thought a lot of what he was doing was actually within the general contours of what uh, the presidency's powers were. And when I looked, you know, took another step back, I thought in many ways it was his critics who were calling for 
rejection of many of our constitutional structures. And that sort of reached a crescendo at the time of the election. Mm. You know, obviously this book came out in um, 2020, so it doesn't address all the things that happened on January 6th, which we could uh, talk about. But, you know, for example, uh, it wasn't uh, Trump who said, let's get rid of the Senate. Let's pack the Supreme Court. Let's get rid of the Electoral College. You you go on and on. And, you know, these are actually significant threats to the structure of our government. And Trump will say, you know, things that seemed on first glance uh, contrary to the Constitution, like I want to build the wall. But then when he did it and you look at how he did it, he actually did it in many of the same ways presidents in the past have acted transfer you know there's a technical legal issue about tech transferring money between spending accounts but he hadn't done anything that was out of the norm for past presidents now there were other things which he did which i thought were um again when you first heard about it, you said can he really do that but mm-hmm. then when you look more closely so i wrote a little bit in there about the pardon power yes. you know he, he said i could pardon my family members i could pardon michael flynn i could pardon myself and, and, and when you first look at it it seemed, uh, you know, how could he pardon himself? But when you look at it, it actually, there's a lot of discussion at the time of the framing, including presidents pardoning themselves, mm. uh, mm-hmm. which it turned out Trump was right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, but, the, but then the, big, the bigger, yeah, but the bigger message was, I actually thought because of the huge onslaught on Trump from the very beginning, even before he took office, particularly through the uh, guise of the Russia hoax investigation, I actually found a lot of the ways Trump used presidential power was defensive, that he was protecting himself. And he was, and this was where I thought the founders, uh, he was living up to the founders vision in a way, which was they expected the self-interest of the person who's president to defend the branch of the presidency as well. And so, yes, he's fighting with Mueller on a day-to-day basis that consumed two years of his presidency, all this Russian hoax stuff. That's right. But in a way, he was also protecting the institution of the presidency. Yeah. And so that, I think, was the final bottom line message of the book. But it, it came out of just thinking and commenting and thinking and watching those struggles every day, but then taking a step back and asking, how does this fit within the way we understand the presidency and its relationship with the other branches? Yeah, I think that comes across in the book very well. Um, the uh, You definitely don't come off, if someone reads it cover to cover, you don't come off as a Trumper person. You come off all. as a very thoughtful person who's um, who's uh, bringing the just a careful reading of the Constitution, the actual text and the tradition of the Constitution to bear on contemporary events. Um, so one one. I think we could start with law enforcement. Um, Maybe people know this, maybe people don't, but um, I think uh, if you start with Article 2, which created the presidency out of thin air uh, just over 200 years ago, nothing like this had ever existed. Um, you just, would you say that that's fair to say, John? Yes, I mean, the problem of the presidency is how do you have, uh, you know, Harvey Mansfield called it taming the prince. Yeah. You know, how do you take an executive which until that time had been monarchical, hereditary, mm-hmm. you know, divine right of kings. Mm-hmm. And you want to still have an executive because you need to have a branch of the government to execute the laws Absolutely. and protect the country's security. But then how yes. do you domesticate it so that it can fit within a Republican form of government? 
and is not part of the you know monarchical British tradition. And people forget we screwed right. it up pretty good in the beginning. You know, people forget <laughs> the articles of there was a version one yes. point of the Constitution. Absolutely, articles really screwed this yeah. up because they had no real executive. And yeah. another thing people forget is we had these state constitutions between 1776 and 1789, which were disasters, which is mm-hmm. why we have a constitution. Is And those state constitutions really subordinated the executive to the legislature. Many of them had essentially parliamentary systems where the legislature picked the governor. Yeah, And the founders realized this was a disaster and had mm-hmm. led to a lot of systematic problems in governance. And so they reacted by saying, yeah, we need to have an Article II president, someone who's independent of the legislature, responsible to the people directly, and carries out the laws and yeah. protects the country's security. But you're right. A lot of people are like, where does that come from? That's actually right. in the constitutional text, believe yeah. it or not. <laughs> well, I'm just going to read Section 1, Clause, the first part. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. And it says a president. And uh, you say in your book and chapter two is really a, if you, if you're going to get the book and you're going to take a look at it, focus a lot of your attention on chapter two, because everything kind of hangs on that presentation of what you call and what other people have called the unitary executive. You call it a theory. It's interesting. I mean, I guess it is a theory, of course, to explain the data of the date what what's the theory explaining the data of the constitution right the constitution says that the executive power shall be vested in a president well that's one person and it, it doesn't seem to be qualified it's not defined like it, the a legislative power is qualified in article one the legislative powers herein granted it says in article one it doesn't say that in article two it doesn't say executive power herein defined and granted. It doesn't say that. It just says, so it seems to have an understanding of what executive power is. And you present, I think it's in chapter three. Uh, well, I have to look, but what, when you talk about law enforcement, right? That's an executive function. And you have a special prosecutor idea. You have an independent prosecutor idea. Can you tell us the difference between independent prosecutor or independent counsel and special counsel? First, let me uh, just uh, to follow up on your point. I don't want to claim that I discovered this (laughs) idea. (laughs) This is Alexander Hamilton's theory of the executive, which he lays out in the Federalist Papers. And then he Mm -hmm. explains in greater detail as a pacificus, his pseudonym during the Jay Treaty, uh, I'm sorry, the the, um, Neutrality Proclamation controversy. But he says it exactly as you do. Article one and article two are different. Article two gives, quote unquote, the executive power, not an executive power or parts of the executive power. It says the executive power of the United States is vested in a single person, the presidency, as as opposed, as you said, article one gives the list of legislative powers to Congress. And no more, which makes sense because the federal government is supposed to be one of limited enumerated, also something people forget these days, limited enumerated powers with the states exercising power most everything in life. So the reason why that concentration is so important and Mm -hmm. controversial is because progressives, um, not progressives necessarily of the ones who call themselves progressives today, but the progressives of the progressive era and the New Deal era, 
they wanted to divide the executive. They wanted to create independent centers of authority. So they didn't want to have the executive power vested in one person. They wanted to have sort of floating technocratic agencies separated and insulated from control by anybody. They would think Dr. Fauci is the ultimate expression right, of their model of governance. Right? So That's someone scary. who's an expert, been there for 40 years, can't be touched by the, you know, the grubby people elected, you know, politicians. And you're saying that's a progressive idea. Progressive, so very much a progressive that's not, idea. That's not part of the founding understanding of it. Not at all. In fact, it doesn't come in really the, you know, the person who really pushed it hard was Woodrow Wilson, yes. who's influenced by, uh, you know, I, you know, we kind of live in Wilson's Republic, right? The mm-hmm. kind of government we have now is the one Wilson envisioned. He wrote it in his books. He's a great mm-hmm. political scientist. Uh, and when he becomes president, and then with the emergency of World War One, he really changes the orientation of our government in this direction. Mm-hmm. And that you know, he got it from the Germans, <laughs> like a lot of bad things. <laughs> and right, this two, you know, this sort of Germanic theory of governance, right, expertise separate from the people. So this is where the independent council comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Mueller wasn't an independent council the way Ken Starr was, um, because it wasn't created by statute. He was that office disappeared after the Whitewater investigations and the Monica Lewinsky impeachment scandal. But essentially, what the attorney general did, this is Jeff Sessions, is he gave Mueller uh, the clothed him in the same aspects of that office. He basically said, I'm not going to remove Mueller, I'm going to give him an unlimited budget, I'm going to let him follow the investigation with it wherever it leads. If you think about that, is sort of the ideal of this progressive vision of government. Here's someone who's doing law enforcement, right? The ultimate part of law enforcement, investigating crimes and prosecuting them. And basically telling the president, you can't touch this guy. He's just gonna do whatever he wants in his expert wisdom and will be completely disconnected from the way we, the people control our agents, the politicians. So Mueller was theoretically uh, not created by that law that has expired, but in the absence of it, attorney generals have sort of created an office like it just by regulation. And so this is one of the things where where I got wrapped up in the politics of the day, but then I put it in the book is I thought Trump could fire Mueller because I don't think it's constitutional, consistent with the text of article two that you read for Congress or attorney generals or anyone to create a prosecutor who's investigating and prosecuting federal crimes who can't be controlled by the president. Yes. Only the president is one charged constitutionally enforcing the law. This is what Justice Scalia said in his famous dissent to Morrison versus Olson attacking the constitutionality of this law. He said, this wolf comes as a wolf. Yeah. yeah sometimes <laughs> you know, wolves comes disguised as sheep. This one is wolf comes as a wolf. Great. It's a great line. Yeah. But anyone who exercises the prosecutorial authority of the United States is just delegated, works for yes. the president. And so right. how does a president control anyone? He fires them. Yes. So yeah, I, thought, a, I, I actually was, so, you know, so I once proposed uh, that Trump should um, have sat down, which he did not do. He should have sat down with a deposition with Mueller, oh. an interview, live streamed, pay-per-view, mm. but carry it live on, you know, for everyone to see. And then at the, the very end, Trump could say, 
And now you're fired. <laughs> you're fired. Yeah. Does his favorite, you know, he loves doing it on TV, but it would have been yes. the greatest. Fu- and I told the guys, I was like, the, you know, I was like, this would get the highest TV ratings oh, of right. any show oh, in the easy. history of the yeah, world. It's, it's the apprentice. It's, it's the apprentice. It'll be the bigger ending than the is Super the Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Yeah, and exactly. then uh, all the revenue you could just donate to uh, charity <laughs> or something like that. That'd be great. Right. Uh, uh, well, I think it's funny people say that uh people have forgotten this I, when i'm teaching uh, my students i don't think ever knew it so they couldn't forget it because you have to yeah. know it first to forget it but i i think a lot of people never learned this i think yeah. that they never read the constitution they never actually read i've, I've you know I, I talk to law students all the time that that don't really haven't really thought carefully about what it says and what it means I mean, well, it, in, a, in a constitutional law textbook, very uh, probably the leading one, which I use, the Constitution is Appendix B. Oh, it's not wow. Appendix A. Appendix oh, A no. is oh, no. the biographies of the justices. Oh, and I, so I that to, says a lot right yes, there. I said to my friend, wow. you know, who's an author on this book, I was like, how can you make the text of the Constitution some appendix in the back? It's not even the first appendix. And so he says, you use it. You use yeah, it, said, obviously, because you think it's a good textbook. Which means yeah, it's just probably one better everybody than... uses. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> so he said, um, the course is not on the constitution. The course is on constitutional law mm. and constitutional law is what the courts create, not what comes from the constitution itself. And I mm. said, that was really telling. That, that, oh. that is very telling. Yes. <laughs> All the courts create. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an issue of authority. It seems like uh, the, the constitution created the court, not the other way around. And so it's, it's like, well, wait, wait, hold on. Do we have the cart before the horse here? Well, this is, this is part of the, uh, it's not really squarely presented in this book, but uh, earlier book I wrote crisis and command. I really addressed yeah. this, which is fantastic book. Um, fantastic. I think if, yes. if the constitution is the highest law, then it's not just the court that has some monopoly on interpreting it and advancing it. The other two branches do too, in the course of doing their job. So you would think a president should never sign an unconstitutional law. He should veto all of them. And you think Congress should never pass an unconstitutional or each congressperson, each mm-hmm. president should interpret the constitution for themselves. So I, I thought the greatest uh, example of this, the two was uh, Abraham Lincoln, of course, right? Saying, I think Dred Scott is wrong. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. I'm not going to carry it out <laughs> in any new case or uh, a Andrew Jackson saying, I think the Supreme Court's wrong and McCullough versus Maryland. I think the bank is unconstitutional. So I'm going to veto the reauthorization of the bank. That's, I think the vision is the constitution yes. is supreme. And then each of the three branches and all of us citizens, we interpret it. And when we, uh, you know, we give force to that interpretation when we do, you know, carry out our activities. And we, you know, we live in this weird world now where the judges have a supremacy uh, of yeah, interpreting that's, the constitution that's and the other branches wanted to have the supremacy yet i think you're doing a lot of people a big favor right now and just giving people a name for it the name is of the view that the court basically says whatever the constitution is for everybody else is called judicial supremacy but that's it's odd because it seems like just take article two there's all sorts of stuff that the executive does or should do, should be able to do, 
um, that requires him to interpret the Constitution for himself. Like, for example, take care of the laws that are, uh, that are face, faithfully executed, right? He has to understand, have yeah, some understanding of what the laws are, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I think example, great example is Thomas Jefferson and the Sedition Act. Mm-hmm. So the Sedition Act actually made it a crime to criticize the government. <laughs> you would think this is a violation of the First Amendment. <laughs> That's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. So Thomas Jefferson said, you know, I'm not going to bring any prosecutions of under that law because I think it violates the free speech clause. Uh, I think he's right, but he had to interpret the Constitution first himself, to decide yeah. which cases to right, what cases to bring. We can't just wait for the court to first. Well, first it has to get through the courts. That takes a long time. The yeah. courts are very slow and and careful. Well, they're supposed to be careful, but it's slow, definitely slow. And then the Supreme Court might not even hear it. So how do you, you know, mm-hmm. um, so that you, you can't be hamstrung like that. Going back to the special counsel. So we have two issues that we're talking about here. Judicial supremacy, which is the view that the court is the main authority about what the Constitution means in all matters, not just the matters that come before it in a specific case, but pretty much all matters. And then the other view that we were talking about, which is the president's normative role in uh, law enforcement, we, which is a, an oblique way, perhaps, of getting at you, the unitary executive, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. and the, the issue that John brought up about whether President Trump could fire the special counsel Mueller. And uh, John briefly mentioned the difference between independent counsel and special counsel. That's a technical difference. The independent counsel statute was what was at issue in Morrison versus Olson. It was upheld, but then it had the sunset provision and it was not reinstated by Congress. And that was after what happened with Clinton. So uh, everybody realized it's a bad idea. (laughs) Yeah. So everybody was like, okay, uh, I think even Brett Kavanaugh, who was on, who was involved with that um, office, he had written an article in a, n- a newspaper. I think it was the Washington Post or something, saying that he thinks that that the independent counsel statute should go away. And he worked for Ken Starr, so that was during Clinton. So um, now he's on the Supreme Court. So yeah. Uh, we have this question of whether president Trump could fire Mueller. And I'm sure there's some people listening to this that can't believe you just said he can fire him. What do you mean? Well, uh, we can't have the junior varsity president. <laughs> who's <laughs> another Scalia ism. Yeah. Junior varsity. <laughs> yeah. We have a little junior varsity president that can't be fired, uh, yeah. which is totally foreign just because a law created, it doesn't mean that it's constitutional. And, and it's in, if it's in the executive branch, if it's an executive function, you're saying that the president should have control of that because he's responsible to the people. He was elected by the people. Nobody else was. Fauci wasn't. Fauci never stood for election. He's just a bureaucrat. Mm. So uh, pre- the president should be uh, checked by what? Public ah, opinion? So, pu- yes. uh, Congress? So this is the, the end of the book because it's... The, um, of course, impeachment twice under the Trump administration. Right? And, um, you know, we have seen it very rarely in our history. And then we had a great debate about impeachment. And yeah. so that's, to me, the main check on the, uh, there's a lot of subconstitutional, you know, what you, you, the political uh, 
checks on the presidency, public opinion you mentioned, oversight hearings, midterm elections, uh, you know, funding. But these are, but the main check. If you go back and look at the founders' debates, they thought, uh, and I, I think Trump went too far in his his defense of the impeachment. They didn't think the founders didn't think impeachment was just for crimes. Uh, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors is uh, a term the founders borrowed from the British. In fact, they borrowed impeachment itself from the British, uh, and which the British and themselves realized was a, not a great idea, and they got rid of it. I mean, they haven't impeached mm-hmm. someone in centuries. But impeachment uh, was used the, uh, to remove uh, not just uh, executives who committed a crime, but also executives who committed some great blunder, some great mistake bad judgment. Uh, you know, Hamilton in the Federalist Papers calls it, it's a, a political offense against the body politic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went back and looked at, uh, you know, what were people impeached for in England mm-hmm. uh, back over the hundreds of years they'd had it before the founding. They impeached people for losing wars. You know, they would <laughs> they impeached people for mismanaging, you know, mismanaging a province. Uh, you know, just, it didn't have to be a crime. So that's the, to me, the main check. Yes. On the president and uh, the ultimate one after you escalate through all those other subconstitutional uh, methods. Yeah, the impeachment is kind of wrapped in legalese language, but it's really a political process. Yes. Would you say that's Uh, fair? Utterly political. And in fact, look at the trial. So at the time, uh, at the time when the founders were designing impeachment, they thought about putting the trial in the Supreme Court which would have been hilarious. Can you imagine? I mean, these are all judges. They don't want to be in a trial. They don't want to, can you imagine them cross, you know, running witnesses? No. And so it would be, a, uh, be a, it would be a circus, but, um, but <laughs> it would be a disaster it. for the court too. Yeah, for everybody. Yeah. But for the court too. Yeah. They, yeah. And so in fact, uh, the founders moved it from having the trial in the Supreme court to the Senate, because as you say, they wanted to protect the court from politics mm-hmm. because you put in the court become too, and as a recognition, that this is a political process. It's a mixture of law and politics. It's yeah. not just, it's not a normal prosecution and legal process. And that's another thing the founders point out. That's why if you're convicted, you're just removed from office. You're not convicted of a crime. You don't serve, yes. you don't go to prison. So the other, I'm sure Trump liked this part in England, they used to execute people convicted <laughs> of impeachment <laughs> or throw them in jail and throw, you know, throw them in jail for years and years. So the impeachment became a non-criminal process. It's just to remove someone from office. Yeah, it's administrative. It's it's like it's as if you're removing a, a tenured professor. Oh no 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 no! That's that's <laughs> got serious now. It's nothing is should not not, not not be anywhere near as difficult as that. <laughs> you notice by the way, tenure nowadays only protects conservative professors, not liberal professors. Wow. Conservative wow. professors are the ones who run against the grain now. Yes. And who administrators right. want to get rid of. Those are the only <laughs> ones that need due process. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, um, yeah. How far we've come. Exactly. I'm, temp- I'm tempted to ask you more about that, but I think I'm going to just move on with the book here. <laughs> okay. um, I mean, uh, well, so I'm, I'm kind of inching, maybe some people can tell I'm inching toward what I'm really interested in, which is the bureaucracy. I'm interested in the administrative state. Mm. Um, A lot of folks don't realize that it's the administrative state that is doing a lot of the, uh, I would, is it fair to say lawmaking? 
Do would you say it's lawmaking that the administrative state is doing? If you think about, well, look at the way I explain it to students to think about it is if you think about the federal law that actually applies to most citizens. Yes. It's created by agencies, never passed by Congress. Not Congress, yeah. Right. Think about the gas mileage requirement for your car. The yes. kind of, you know, you know, kind of engines you can run cleaning up your backyard with the leaf blower. The, oh kind, right, the, the internet, right? Internet access, yes. the fees you pay, cell phone, all done by and, agencies. And it's growing. It grows every day, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's and, not like it's static. It, this is continually changing and growing. It's growing. And not just that, but it's not just making the rules. The, these agencies also have the power to enforce them, right? So that, say you violate mm-hmm. some federal communications or securities exchange commission rule. Those commissions have the power to prosecute you before their own courts within that agency for rules that they made. Only then, after you've been convicted by their courts, can you appeal to a federal court for defense? After, as you point out, years and years later. Um, and so these agencies, they get away with the most outrageous interpretations of the law because a lot of people don't want to fight them for years and years and spend you know, maybe millions of dollars, but this violates the very core. So if there's one, so the most, the per, this is interesting, the, guess who the most quoted person by the founders were during the constitution, constitutional drafting and adoption. Who do you think is, what was the, well, actually there's, who do you think is the most quoted source? And then there, the document that's most quoted is the Bible, by the way, but after yes. the Bible, yes. after Jesus, who do you think is the most <laughs> cited person during the founding? Locke. I would say Montesquieu. Yeah, Montesquieu. Oh, Montesquieu. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. for this proposition that the power to make the law and enforce the law cannot be in the same hands. Mm, Otherwise, yes. you destroy his cause. Then you have the end of destroy liberty. And yes. this, these agencies, they do exactly that. Congress gives them the power to make the law about how clean the air should be. And then gives them the power to enforce the law by imposing fines and sanctions on anyone it feels like well i'll I'll, i I, it's so great that you mentioned that because i'm we're totally on the same page here um Mm -hmm. federalist 47 from madison gives a definition of tyranny and i believe he gets it from montesquieu i think he quotes montesquieu um he says the accumulation of all powers legislative executive and judiciary in the same hands whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. We uh, were the federal constitution, therefore, really chargeable with this accumulation of power or with a mixture of powers, having a dangerous tendency to such accumulation. No further arguments would be necessary to inspire a universal reprobation of the system. Mm. And yet what you just said is essentially what we're dealing with in terms of the administrative state. You have the executive power to enforce it. You have the legislative power to create the rule and, and the executive power to apply it to an individual. And then you have, um, a an adjudication process i mean just listen to the term adjudication 
in in the administrative state. Now, a lot of folks maybe don't know that the administrative state is in the executive branch. Well, unless you count independent agencies, which, but um, <laughs> whatever those are, we haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll leave that to side. But we have an executive branch that is huge. Mm. And how much of it is accountable to going back to Article 2, the executive power shall be vested in a bunch of agencies. That's not what it says. It says mm. the executive power shall be vested in a president. And it seems like President Trump got this. I was with you. I didn't vote for President Trump in 2016. Now, I filled the bubble in because there's one bubble. And I said, <laughs> what I said to myself was, I'm voting for Mike Pence because I like Mike Pence. Hmm. And I have to vote for vice president, I think. So I'm going to vote for him for vice president. I, and it happens to be the same bubble. And, and I just, <laughs> that, that like, kind of logic, you should have been a lawyer and gone to law school. <laughs> yeah, I should have. Right. Um, but I love what you say in, um, in your, uh, the end of uh, chapter two, and you said it a couple times in chapter two, I believe, where you said that it didn't seem like uh, the president really maybe was conscious. You said, you, you say it very subtly. You say consciously or not. <laughs> President Trump seems to have this gut. Uh, he gets it. He seems to yeah. get it when he gets in office. He's like, wait. But I'm the president and I run the executive branch. Why can't I fire these people? Yeah. So this was the great alignment of his TV show with governance, because, <laughs> you know, progressives will often say, well, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the president can order anyone to do anything. It's very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, the only place mm -hmm. you see where the president can order something is that he can order the cabinet officers to give him their, his, their opinions. Right. And that's it. In so writing, progressives yeah. will say, oh, well, if the constitution doesn't say the president can order anybody around, then we can create all these independent power centers within the executive branch, which will depend, which will make their decisions on expertise and not you know, what the people want. Right. And so, uh, and, and this question came up at the very first year of our Republic in 1789. There's something called the great removal debate. And what we've said is the constitution does give the president a power to fire. And that's how the president compels people to com obey his or her orders is the threat of removal. If you don't follow his orders. So that was in what? 1789, 1789, 1789, the very first, they had a fight in Congress over whether to try to restrict the president's ability to fire the first, very first cabinet officers. The, the context for that debate was they were creating the first cabinet agencies, yeah. agencies. They had to create them. They, yeah. they didn't exist prior yeah. to the constitution. So the constitution is in effect. It's been ratified. Congress so, is now sitting and they have to create the war department. They have to create the post office. They have to create the treasury. Yeah. And it's uh, some people in Congress tried to put in those statutes that, well, since the president needs the Senate's advice and consent to appoint the secretary of the treasury, then president Washington has to come back and get our approval to fire any of these officers too. And this is where right, the logic of Article 2 comes from. If the president's in charge of carrying out the laws, 
then the president must have the ability to order all the subordinates who assist him in carrying out those laws what to do. And he can't do that effectively unless he can fire them. And remember, that's the great tagline of Donald Trump's TV show is you're (laughs) fired. So in a weird way, he understood the primary tool that the president uses to manage the executive branch and get it to move in one direction. But you're right. I think, you know, Trump, again, it's not conscious and conscious, but remember also in the Federalist Papers that uh, Madison and Hamilton, they say things like, we want the incentive, the political incentives of the man to align with right, his place. In other words, yes. we want his self-interest to be aligned with the self-interest of his branch of government. And then he, mm. they expected each branch to push forward and fight with the other branches to pursue their self-interest. And they thought that fighting would produce public and you know, make sure the public interest was advanced. So they That's wanted, so my point. book argues, they wanted Trump to pursue what's his best interest, which is defending himself from Mueller, which is trying to establish a program, a unified program for the executive branch, fire people who disagree. And then Congress and the judiciary can fight with him through that conflict. It's a very American theory of political yeah. science, right? <laughs> through that conflict, right? Public interest emerges. Yeah. Yeah. That's a wonderful way to say it. Um, it seems to me that when I'm reading your book, You've just read the Constitution carefully. You've read the Federalist Papers. You think that that it makes sense. Uh, Madison, I think, uses the term ambition. <laughs> Let ambition counteract ambition. Yeah. He uses that word, ambition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's good that the president is ambitious because you're saying the f- it's the fight, the fight between the branches. That's not dysfunctional. That's actually functional. That's right. what it's supposed to do. He, they, I mean, I actually think that Madison or Hamilton would be very happy to see paralysis, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. you know, you, as you can see also in the federal service, they said, if you have that kind of fighting, then the government will only act when it's really important. And right. in general, you're going to have a bias against federal action. Instead, we have this view today of why is the federal government fixing this? Why isn't Washington fixing that? Right? Why aren't there more laws being passed? That's really, really, like that's a criticism yeah, yeah. of members of Congress. You didn't pass enough laws. That would be an indictment under the 18th century vision of what Absolutely. we want the federal government to do, right? Because they wanted them to check each other through fighting, and only the most important things would make it through. Mm-hmm. I actually think that that might be the most controversial. Just in the circles I run in, and you know, I'm in Los Angeles area. Uh, just you mean it's the just, circles that you drive in? Yes, that's right. <laughs> but, but, you don't walk anywhere. Come on. Uh, the, the, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, the the it, it it just seems like people don't get that they they don't get that it's the the understanding that the branches are supposed to duke it out. They're not always supposed to be in agreement. That's that they were afraid of that. They were afraid that all of a sudden there's agreement in one, you know accumulation of power that that people i think it's a point about human nature wouldn't you say that, that they distrust human nature it's we're not always angels we, we do need government but we also need to watch the government so how do you design it to where we right. not only watch people who are not always angels but we need also to watch the government which is run by people <laughs> so 
I, I, in the classes I teach, I, I try to explain the Constitution is a conservative document in a small C way that okay. it doesn't think people are perfectible, doesn't think they're going to be better. Right? It's, as you say, it's based on the idea that people are, you know, are a mixture of good and bad. Right? And that, yeah. right, as you said, if, if they men were angels, you don't need a government. Mm-hmm. And that it also is based on the expectation people will pursue their self-interests, right? That's Federalist number 10. People will pursue their interests. They'll form interest groups. They'll try to take over the government and misuse it to benefit themselves, right? Like interest group politics explained right there. And so they try to design a, syst- a delicate system to, tr- to prevent that from happening, but using their, right, their self-interest as a way of checking each other. It's very, um, people have written this, right? It's very uh, sort of like Newtonian physics in its way, right? Newton is very impactful this time, right? It was just a hundred years ago, his impact. And they thought they could mm. construct right, a government yes. that was like the way the orbs, you know, circle, you know, right? The way the orbs, uh, you know, orbit the heavens, uh, each powers would balance each other. Mm-hmm. The problem we have with today's government, I think, is that, um, the branches are not fighting for themselves anymore. They've ceded mm-hmm. the Constitution to the Supreme Court. Congress, right, they pass a new law. What is it really composed of? Just delegating enormous authority to the executive agencies. And then Congress spends most of his time trying to prevent the president from controlling those agencies so that they can just do whatever they want. Um, take the Clean Air Act. There's a case actually right now at the Supreme Court, which might start to cut back on this and say there's limits on how far Congress can go. But Congress essentially, when they created the Clean Air Act, they just said, we give the executive, the EPA, the power to do whatever it wants in terms of air quality, as long as it's in the public interest. And it's just one sentence that essentially gave this little agency the power over all the air in the country. <laughs> and that public, as long as it's in the public interest, which according, according to who? Here. According yeah. to who? Yeah. To the agency. That's yeah. a political. That's a political judgment. It's it's yeah. such a naive thing to say that that not not to think that that's political. Of course, that's political. That's a political judgment. It's about what we want. Is right. It's a cost benefit. It's a trade off. Yes. About what we as citizens want. Yeah, Absolutely. everything's a trade off now. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you uh, when you're drawing from. The, the, the methodology of the book is to look at the unitary executive. What do you think the, the weakest part of the executive theory of the, of the executive, sorry, the unitary executive hmm. is, is? What do you think the weakest part of the unitary executive theory is? Uh, so I think it has actually a pretty strong basis in the history of the ideas leading up, to, but it does depend on just a single sentence, <laughs> right, of the, of, of the Constitution, the very first sentence, you read it in Article yes. 2. So a lot of the critics will say, how could something so important just be in one sentence? It could have just been a rhetorical flourish, right? Each of the three articles starts out, Article 3 says the judicial power of the United States is vested in, you know, the Supreme Court. Right. And, and, the and there's no further explanation. So a lot of uh, scholars, and I would say this is the majority view, you know, this is the view of most other constitutional law scholars is, no, the great weight of the power has got to be in Congress. It's the long, you know, Article 1 is so lengthy, so detailed. There's so many powers listed. And there's that necessary and proper clause at the end. 
why would we vest so much power in the president when it has just that one sentence at the beginning compared to the long, long, and then I mean, I think that, and then you hear, I think the more unsophisticated view is what you often hear rhetorically is, oh, but the American revolutionaries revolted against King George III, so they must not have liked executive power, right? Like, because they, <laughs> that's, that's usually what you hear someone like uh, Senator Leahy say, or actually, uh, you know, um, uh, Judge Brown Jackson, who's having her hearings today. She wrote an opinion saying, the pres- Americans rejected the idea of the president as a king. So therefore, I'm going to find against the president now. <laughs> and it's just sort of rhetoric, but yeah. as you're pointing out, this discussion points out that you know what the executive power is, where it came from. It's far more nuanced than just saying, "Oh, the founders were against King George III." Right. Definitely. Well, when you have a, the Take Care Clause, for example, it does assume that there's law in place, and obviously, Congress takes. <clears throat> takes the bulk of that work. I mean, uh, the president signs it. The president can be a legislative idea leader from the White House. But it's really Congress that should be doing the legislating. Uh, so the, it, the take care clause seems to assume that there's law in place that, that binds the president and that he has a duty to. Um, but it also, there's this thing called prosecutional discretion, for example. Where yeah, you, talk you anticipate about- the next thing I wanted to mention was okay. that I do think the president should not enforce unconstitutional laws, uh, a la Abraham Lincoln and Dred Scott. But there a, a significant change occurred under the Obama administration. President Obama, for the first time, said, I don't have to enforce laws I don't agree with. This is something no president has really claimed before. So there is something called prosecutorial discretion, which is uh, the idea that prosecutors can't, right? They can't prosecute every crime. They Mm -hmm. can't catch every speeding car. No. So they have to decide where should we put our enforcement efforts? You know, we should go after the fastest speeders or we should go to the, the truck who might hit more people, right? That's, it's a, and this is also part of giving the president the authority to enforce the laws. So the obvious area where this has caused so much controversy is immigration. Uh, allegedly, there's somewhere, you know, the estimates vary, but there are millions of illegal aliens in the United States. The executive branch does not have the money or personnel to try to catch them all and remove them all. So presidents have long had a priority list. The number one group of people who try to deport are people who've committed crimes because they're the most dangerous people to society. And then you have President Obama came along and he said, I'm going to use that power and just not deport anybody. Right. So the first was uh, DACA, children who are brought here uh, illegally and then grown up here. I have a lot of sympathy for them, but if they're not going to be subject to deportation, that's up to Congress to decide. Mm -hmm. And then he said, their parents, so before long, it went from, say, a million or two million people to something like estimates are six to eight million illegal aliens. President so Obama well. said, we will not remove from the country at all. I think that's a dangerous, a, a danger, and I don't know, Trump never tried that. So uh, the Supreme Court, to my great dismay, said President Obama could do that in a uh, case of action involving my employer, the University of California, of course, sued Trump to force him to keep 
President Obama's non-prosecution decisions in place. So then I said, well, if that's true, why doesn't President Trump just cut tax rates to 20% for everyone and just <laughs> say, no, I'm not going to enforce the tax laws. You pay 20% and just call it a day. Um, because that's the same logic, actually. Great, President great Trump, example. Yeah. yeah, President Trump actually never tried to use executive power as far as President right. Obama had, right. and President right. Biden is now by saying, right. I, "I just don't like certain laws, so I'm not going to carry them out." Because mm-hmm. that that's that amounts to a v, you know a, a veto essentially after you've had your chance to veto. That's right. So, do you think that President Trump should be able to fire? Okay, let's talk about the civil service here. Hmm. most bureaucrats are civil service. I think that's fair to say, wouldn't you say? You're a civil servant. Of course, you're not a federal. Yeah, 99% of them are civil service. Yeah, Civil service makes it very difficult. Those are acts passed by Congress, makes it very difficult to fire people who work for the government as employees. Incompetent or not. Yes. And (laughs) there's a, you know, it's- In fact, um, if markets are efficient, the incompetent (laughs) will concentrate in the government. (laughs) I hear people- kind of popular level people use the term deep state and i when i hear that term i think well you're just talking about the bureaucracy you're just talking about civil service yeah Um, so what do you think about that should the president be able to fire more people more easily what's the what's the debate there about yes so this is a really tough question because yes, I know. Uh, there's a, there's this <laughs> law from the late 19th century called the Pendleton Act that created the yeah. civil service. The Supreme Court generally upheld it, and presidents haven't tried to test it since. Mm. But we we always have wondered what would happen if a president said, "I'm going to fire, you know, Dr. Fauci." Yes, he's a civil servant, but I think his policies uh, have harmed the country, and I think we need new leadership. I think that that's a case the Supreme Court really has to resolve. And I think that I, I don't see how Congress can essentially say we can just decide to limit your power of removal, which is the core, one of the core powers of the executive, as to 99% of the government. Because it doesn't need to stop at the bureaucracy. What if they said, right. oh, gosh, after all the Trump years, the attorney general is really important. Let's make the attorney general independent. Yeah. You know, you can't right. fire the right. So there's no limit to this idea of the civil service or let's right. make the head of the joint chiefs, right? The military, yes. that's like yeah. expertise. So I make the head of the joint chiefs independent of the president. So I think, yeah. again, I don't see how just under the constitutional text, Congress is allowed to place off limits. It would just be a slippery slope to tyranny. Yes. Yeah. It's- it would just the tyranny of experts. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, alleged, alleged experts and whether you're even an expert, I mean, experts do disagree. <laughs> experts right. disagree with each other all the time. And how do you know which expert is right? Or, you know, the, the, the issue of the civil service is one that I've thought about a lot. And I know it is a broader, more uh, maybe technical discussion on some levels because there's good reason for it. I mean, um, but it is a little odd, I guess, at first glance to think that the at-will employee would be the ones closest to the president, the ones that are highest up, like the Joint Chiefs or like, um, like uh, you know, the Attorney General or something like that. 
who can be fired. So maybe we should give this background. If, if you don't know, Trump can fire any or well, the president back then, Trump, he could fire any any cabinet officer. Is that correct? Yes. At, as, just the same as if it was an at will employee. Is that correct? Yes. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, it goes down, I think. There's no due process. Down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's, the president can remove someone just because he levels. says, okay. yeah, I'd like, I'd like to just put in a different person. We need fresh leadership or so, I don't like you. <laughs> or, <laughs> I don't like right? your like, tie. You, you, Jeff Sessions, I don't like you anymore. You're out of here. Right. Like, yeah. you could, or I think, or I think you've made, but you know, I, you think you've made bad decisions. So or, it's not a problem yeah. that Trump. You don't have to give a, a reason at all. You can just fire someone with no reason. Right. So when Trump is skewering, I didn't follow his Twitter uh, at all, Um, but, you know, it's just too it was too much for me. And I just I think that's actually why I didn't have like what Larry Elder calls Trump derangement syndrome. I never got that (laughs) because I I wasn't constantly looking at Twitter. I just it just was like I would see kind of the big picture and I would say, oh, that makes sense to me, actually. I like I mean, I'm not judges. on Twitter because I don't see the point of it. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, yeah. you're you have a life, in other words. Well, same here. <laughs> um, so but the drama, but, I, I noticed he, Curtis didn't say anything. I, would I, am, see, not, was, I am not on Twitter. <laughs> I, I can't I would handle see the drama. The, I would see the screenshots, though, because you see those yeah. sometimes. And yeah. and he would be skewering Jeff Sessions and people would say, I can't believe he's treating the attorney general so poorly. It's well, but he could fire Jeff Sessions yeah. if he wanted to. I yeah. mean, you know, and Jeff Sessions is free to leave. I don't know if yeah, he's right. why is he taking the abuse if he doesn't like right. But so he could fire how far down in the in the Justice Department. So if you, you think about the Justice General. Department, the Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, um, the uh, there's a level which would be considered the undersecretary level in a normal department. So you can fire all of those down to what's called the Assistant Attorney General, or would be an Assistant Secretary mm-hmm. in a department. Generally, the president can fire to there. So that's four levels now, but he can't fire the, I don't even know what you call him anymore. Administrative assistant. It was a secretary back in the Mary Tyler Moore days. They called it a secretary, (laughs) but you know, someone who is the office manager, I don't know. Yeah. Or just the, or the the prosecutors in the justice department. Most of the prosecutors, there's about 3000 of them, I think. No, not that many. Um, But there's right. The, Line, what we call the line attorneys, the people bring the cases to show right. up in court, right. who write the right. opinions that they're they cannot be fired uh, under the civil service the right the civil service act. But what I think constitutionally, the president should be able yeah. to. What that's code for saying is, if Trump attempted to fire them, just as a raw power move, take away their passwords, take away their keys, yeah, um, then that would be a, a cause of action in court, is what you're saying. And yeah. Trump now would be in court fighting. Whereas yeah. if he if he just said to the attorney general, um, I'm going to fire you, you're gone. There's no cause of action no. for court. The attorney general can't sue the president, and say, OK, there was due process yeah. that was ignored. Some people have tried. Yeah. <laughs> there have been people who've been fired, who've tried to sue for their back pay, essentially, and they've <laughs> lost. But, and, you know, the, yeah. there's one agency. You know, this is an interesting. Thing. There is one agency of government where this does not apply, where there is no civil service. And that is the military. Yes. The president can fire anyone in the military. And who do Americans trust <laughs> the most? Insta- right, the most trusted institution in society is the military. 
and the military. So we call them when we want to get things done, you know, when there's a natural disaster or protecting the country or because and it's the most accountable directly it's to, the accountable to the president. And that, and here's the reason why I do think it's key to the presidency's success is because why do we have a president? We need a branch of government. This is from Hamilton again, who can act swiftly, decisively. You know, he says, yes. with dispatch and decision. If you have all these people saying, oh, I don't know if I'm going to follow your orders, Mr. President, and I got civil service for check, you can't fight. How's a president going to have his orders yeah. quickly executed? And, you know, this is an area where the framers thought, you know, it's more important to act quickly sometimes than to be 100% right, because speed is of the essence. Um, and I have to say, you know, this is, I think this has been true. You know, I think, again, Abraham Lincoln is my uh, model here. He really, you know, called on the deepest reservoirs of presidential power because he had an emergency unlike any other. Mm. And he needed to be able to, you know, remove the generals all the way down to the private if he needed to, to get the army moving the way he wanted. Mm. Um, if you had, right, civil service in the military, can you imagine how long it would take. <laughs> McClellan wouldn't attack anyway, but imagine how right, long it would right. take, right? If you couldn't, right, every pro, down to the private could just say, oh, I'm going to sue you, President Lincoln. I'm not going to follow your orders. A yeah. lot of times yeah. presidents don't, like what keeping with Trump, he didn't do something like fire Attorney General Jeff Sessions because of the political fallout. Yes. He didn't want to deal with the political fallout. He's dealing with enough and he's it's not that he couldn't fire him. It's just that he, and the same with Mueller is what you're saying, right? Yeah. He didn't, he could fire Mueller, but for he political reasons, he didn't, but for political reasons, he thought I got enough on my plate here. I'm not going to deal with that as well. I actually, and, so I, 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 this is one of the things, you know, I was participating in the debates at the time uh, over Mueller. And I said, president Trump, don't fire Mueller. Cause there's nothing to this hoax. There's nothing there, there. And so when Mueller comes out and reports that, you're going to have the cleanest bill of health there could be. You were proven so, right. You were totally proven oh, right. Oh, because how you did, could tell yeah. there was nothing to it. <laughs> how, how soon into it could you tell that? Um, so when the very first, uh, when Mueller started releasing his very first indictments, you might remember he indicted um, Manafort, yes. um, people like this. Um, when I looked Not at directly those related to any Russia stuff, either. exactly. When you start, nice when you stuff. started seeing what he was up to, actually, there was it was not what you would expect to see if actually something had happened with Russia. Mm. You know, you would expect to see the indictment of people for things related to Russia, but instead they were, you know, Manafort's uh, basically indicted for represent, representing Ukrainians and cheating them out of their money, which <laughs> I thought was fair game for lobbyists in Washington. But right, that this is. Yeah. Right. This is when did that be? What since when did cheating become a crime in Washington D.C.? But anyway, he, um, you know, when you saw those first indictments come out and you read them, you're like, oh, there's nothing. There's nothing about Russia in here. Mueller's actually spending his time on other things. Mm -hmm. um, there's no there there, and so that's right. He could have fired Mueller at any time. I think constitutionally, um, but. It was smarter for Trump actually to let him continue his investigation, fight it, right? As the president should say, fight over executive privilege, fight over what witnesses could appear, what they were like, what classification, classified materials could be produced mm -hmm. to defend the prerogatives of the branch. But in the end, he, um, I think he was smart to let Mueller complete, you know, complete the job. Yeah. January 6th doesn't definitely throws a wrench in everything. Yeah. Um, 
But I, I just as far as like Trump's chances for reelection, I would say. But in terms of Mueller, he was proven right. And I would say that that would be uh, uh, an arrow in his quiver for reelection. But of I course, you he, have the January 6th stuff. So, yeah, well, I was going to say that I think if COVID hadn't happened and January 6th yes, hadn't happened, I think right. people would are now beginning to recognize that Trump did the right thing to fight with Mueller, to fight the investigation, but to allow it to right, allow it to come to completion. You know, I have I have a very mixed view on January 6th. Um, okay. I think and I've got a, a, a scholarly article that will come out in the next year. I think it's the most thorough look at the constitutional question, which is. Oh. Who resolves disputes over the over electors? Constitution mm-hmm. has, doesn't actually say. Suppose, and this happened right That's famously in right. 1876. Suppose uh, a state sends two official slates of electors to Washington, yeah. or suppose the governor and the legislature divide and they each send their own electors, which did Who, not happen. Right? It did not happen. No, it did not happen. This, this, this is why I disagree. So, in a way, I. I, I actually agree more with Trump on the law, but not on the facts. Maybe that's one way to say it. Hmm. I think yeah. legally, the government has to have a place to decide a result or a dispute over the electors. Um, the Constitution doesn't clearly say. So in the article, I make the case that it actually should be the vice president, not Congress, because every time the founders could decide, they decided against letting Congress have any say in picking the president. Yeah. Including, right, if the electoral count fails, right, as you know, the House picks, but by yes. state delegation, right. with each state having a single vote. So even there, they didn't right. want Congress to pick. They wanted states to pick. Mm-hmm. So um, given the Constitution silent, do you think Congress should be allowed to choose the electors or should the vice president? I say the vice president. And then, um, but I, I agree with you, 2020, the thing that's lacking are the facts, there's yes. no disputed electors that make it to Washington. All the elector votes and certificates are valid on their face. And so the vice president doesn't have, there's no dispute for that power to resolve. So there's no discretion on the part of the vice president at yeah. that time is what you're saying. Yeah. And in fact, the dangerous thing would be the electoral count act, which allows Congress right to take over. Mm. Right. Cause th- so th- I start my article with this hypothetical. Suppose it's 2024 and Vice President Harris is opening the electoral votes. Scary. <laughs> and suppose Pennsylvania and Georgia and Arizona, they realize the error of their ways <laughs> and they <laughs> vote for the Republican president nominee, whoever that might be. Could Kamala Harris say, I reject Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona's votes because they changed their electoral votes in a racist way. Hmm. And so I reject their votes or I'm going to count an alternate slate of votes sent by hmm. Stacey Abrams. Oh, <laughs> this is right. The, <laughs> right? Yes. Right? Excellent, that's, excellent. that's essentially yeah. possible if Trump's view of what Pence could have done is possible. Right. Right. Because you got to have a factual you got to have the facts to actually use the power. And I don't think those facts yeah. would be present in my hypothetical with Harris. And I don't think they were present in 2020. So. It would be fair to say that the president mistreated the vice president at that. Point. Oh yeah, terribly. I yeah. think now I also think Pence is sort of like a tragic figure in a way, like from Greek tragedy, because yeah, he uh, did the right thing. I think yes. he he, but then he probably but ended his political career in doing it because his uh, significant chunks of his own party 
didn't understand that he was doing the right thing. Yeah. They, and, they hadn't been leveled up in turn. They weren't squared away with their education on that. Right. And he made an enemy of president Trump. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, nice. you know, if, if it's not Trump good. Was, yeah. I mean, I think I would think if he wanted to do anything in the, whether he runs or not, Trump would be determined to make sure Pence does not become the nominee. Well, if, <laughs> for this if, betrayal, right. <laughs> the greatest sin Trump uh, or Pence committed was being white and being a male. Another one of those. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, now he's got Trump on against him. Um, the the uh, Kamala Harris uh, thought experiment is extremely helpful, I think, as as people think through just the puzzling aspect of how is it that how do you deal with this stuff when the president doesn't seem to know what's what's really the case as far as the facts go or you said that you agreed with his understanding of the law right Mm -hmm. um i guess you mean not the law in terms of pence's discretion there's no law that says pence has discretion in that situation yeah i I guess it's i mean trump never actually himself explained okay but i would say the constant somewhere in the constitution somebody has to be able to resolve disputes over who's the right elector from georgia right and so it's got i think it's the vice president this is the best location um if there was a second edition of your book would you be interested in putting uh, uh, another chapter in there about the January 6th. Yeah, I would, because yeah, I finished it before and I was trying to write about, uh, the presidency and the presidency executive power of Trump. This is kind of a coda right at the yes. end is, yeah. uh, he, um, I think he, uh, again, and I don't think it was, he misunderstood the constitution. I think he didn't, the facts weren't there mm-hmm. to support him. Which and, and this is the unfortunate thing because there were a number of times in his presidency where, again, the law was on his side and actually he restrained himself. You're talking about immigration. Talk, or another example is the disorder in our streets with the Black Lives Matter protests. He did not send in federal troops. Right. right when parts of right. these cities were actually, you know, lawless and taken over, or like parts of Portland, parts of Seattle were actually, you know, could not be controlled. But that's actually, there's a federal law called the Insurrection Act, which allows the president to send troops and to restore law and order. They were used famously here in California after the Rodney King riots. Trump, there were a lot of times when Trump actually didn't, you know, restrain himself for political reasons. Yeah. He could have gone, I think, much farther with the COVID response. Right. Yeah, but he restrained himself. I mean, Biden tried it, right? He tried to have a vaccine mandate. He tried to right, yep, stop right. evictions. You know, right. Trump could have tried, you know, it took, as you point out, took years for the courts to resolve it. Trump right, could have right. tried to reopen the economy, right? What if Trump had just said, I order everybody to open? I order school. In fact, he went <laughs> at Beargrass. He said, I order every public school in the country that takes federal funds to reopen. Wow. He, yeah, he, he didn't do that. He didn't, and he did not, he didn't even try it. It would have been very much in his very active on Twitter, though. Yeah, <laughs> he was very. <laughs> he he skewered the Democrat cities on Twitter. Yeah, uh, that had been taken over by rioters. That's true. Yeah. But he never yeah. sent. He never used his presidential power no. to channel Restore. federal funds in a in a in a armed response to that. Never yeah. did that. Yeah, no, he could have. So actually, that's a paradox. Is it I is, think yeah. he. Um, was often doing things for political reasons 
where he said made outrageous or aggressive claims of power, but then he didn't use them. John, do you mind if we ask you, what's it like teaching at Berkeley? What's it like living in Berkeley? You lived there for so long. What, well, I, uh, so I this mean, also I'm sure, I'm sure you, people are like, what, who, what is who going is on? This guy? He lives in Berkeley. So you, uh, <laughs> you were saying it, you were talking about things your students are too young to remember. So yeah, I, I, yeah. To, to follow your example, I like to say I'm West Berlin. Oh yeah, you know, just this right. little symbol of <laughs> capitalism and democracy and freedom, surrounded by a sea of Marxists. And you, do you does that energize you? Does that does that uh, get you up in the morning? Do you feel like this is my mission here? I I've never really. The only time I've ever been in an institution that had other conservatives was when I was in the Bush administration for two years. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, right you go to college, you go to graduate school, you teach, right. you're always surrounded right. by liberals. Right. So to be a conservative right, in higher education or to be a conservative scholar of any kind, any place means you, you're a contrarian. What did you like about and age? What did you like about living in Berkeley? Nothing. <laughs> I liked, I liked that it was close to work. Okay. Well, that's something. <laughs> Actually, you know, I got to say it's, you know, Berkeley, you know, it's worth visiting because it's kind of like visiting a natural history museum of the 1960s. So you mm-hmm. have like, you know, early man and, you know, elderly, <laughs> and then like, it's just stopped at, yeah. you know, Vietnam man, <laughs> Vietnam protesting. Wow. So you walk down, you know, the famous street telegraph Avenue, mm-hmm. you know, marijuana everywhere tie-dye still is the the fashion choice of many um and you saw there are some people probably doing a lot of drugs who think the vietnam war is still going on even to this day <laughs> it's a you know it's like any college town it has a wonderful you know cultural life lots of great restaurants and arts and so on um but also it suffers i think i think the lockdown really made things crazy so i always say uh, berkeley yeah it was always like a a pot of water on boil. Like it's just crazy by yeah. nature. So, and then like, suppose you put a lid on that and kept it on there for two years, people are going to grow crazy. And it's, I think the lockdown really drove people nuts. Those, those strange poor way. small business owners. I, you oh, know, gosh. And, but just people like people didn't like people be yeah. kept indoors for two no. years. So I think it's a, uh, it's, it's an interest. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy place to live. But I, like I said, you have to be a contrarian if you're conservative to be in the academy or to even be a scholar now. And so being in Berkeley, I don't know, sometimes I wonder, is it really any different than Madison, Wisconsin or Charlottesville, Virginia or Austin, Texas or you know, Ann Arbor, right? <laughs> right. all these other places? Um, They're everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think the, the uni- universities are like that? Why do you think that they're monolithically to the left? For the most part, so I don't, it's, it's odd. Some, it's something's like like dealing with uh, dictators. You should believe what they say. <laughs> right? So, like people are surprised about Putin invading Ukraine. Well, but he said he was going to do it. <laughs> he said saying for years right, he was right. going to do it. And so, like, right, the, if you read the books that uh, radicals have written about higher education, right, they said they wanted to take it over. Right? They yeah. said because it generates ideas and teaches the young. And they would have tenure. They could, right? There's um, uh, what's it? Is it uh, Horowitz or tenured radicals? Is the name of the book? Yep. It just sort of lays I've out, you that, know, right? exactly. A gaming uh, the system. Yeah, it's just, and that if you took over the universities, uh, that uh, it would give you this powerful place in society, and it's all worked out to their 
great uh, benefit. It used the interesting thing, the thing that's a little different now that's reached a higher stage is that it used to be, I think, that administrators were not so sure of all this. But now I think administrators are the wokest of the woke. They've oh, even yeah. gone farther to the left than the professoriate. I think it used to be the administrators were generally more, not conservative in political terms, but conservative in terms of just restraining change <laughs> at the university. And yeah. now I think they're the ones, you know, you read some of the cases in some of our liberal arts colleges where it's the administrators who are fomenting, yeah. you know, disorder right. and trouble. Uh, so that's the thing that make, has like sort of accelerated the troubles we've had is, you know, I now agree. it's administrators and professors together want to radically, you know, want to use the institute, want to use higher education as an instrument of social engineering. Yeah. Do you feel pressure to inflate grades at all? Is that an issue that you do? Luckily with? in law school, we have a strict curve, but um, sooner or later, you're you know, a lucky grading, man. Yeah. No grading. I can see grading going by the wayside in the interest of diversity, right? Because if you have, if you're going to have this unbelievable commitment to racial diversity, then you can't have differences in grades between the races too, it seems. That's under right. this. That's right. So I think we're going to have to all eventually go to Harvey C minus Mansfield system, <laughs> right? Where he, uh, it was a professor of mine in college where, right? He would give you the curved oh, grade. And then he, yeah. if you want, he'll tell you your real grade. <laughs> I love that idea. So I might have to start doing that too. <laughs> yeah, I say that that's so in terms of your undergraduate career, do you feel like there was great inflation? And so I went to Harvard. And so even then they said the average grade was probably between a B plus and an A minus. Mm-hmm. But then they also had a ranking system. Okay. So the ranking system, oh, I, I think actually, did, yeah, because what they, so what the way Harvard worked back then, I think that's gone now was that they were very strict in awarding uh, cum laude, magna and summa. So they numerically limited them. So you could tell actually how someone did not buy the grades, but you know, the honors they graduated with. I think, I bet that's all by the wayside now, because that you can't have these kinds of distinctions in a world of diversity. Do you want to tell us what your real grade was from uh, <laughs> Professor Mansfield? <laughs> as long as he doesn't remember, I'm not telling. <laughs> Were you afraid? Were you afraid to ask? Actually, uh, he only started doing this a few years ago because okay. he said the grade. So I think famously when he was, when I had him, he was not subject to a curve. So he actually gave you the grades he thought you deserved. Hence his C minus middle name. But then now the grading system at Harvard is so debased that um, I think the average grade now at Harvard's an A minus. <laughs> well, it's like if you if you give the grade that you think that the student earned, um, then that's like a cause of action now. It's like it's like some um, kind of you, uh, know, you know I've tried process to fail goes in place and I've tried uh, to fail people. So if you try to award a failing grade here, you have to write a letter uh, that explains why the grade should be failing. Sometimes this letter that I've had to write to fail has been longer than the exam answer the student actually wrote. Oh my God. <laughs> which is why they failed. And then, right. Yeah. Then you have this whole disciplinary system that the student could trigger if they wanted to, to try to litigate this all the way. And there have been students, not none of mine, but I've heard of students who threatened to sue the university because of failing grades. And so Right. If you're a dean, you're going to be like, we just give them like the lowest passing exactly, grade. So we don't have yeah. to spend a hundred thousand dollars defending yeah. us from this litigious that's, student. Yeah. That's why there's great inflation. It's just yeah. odd to me. 
I guess, do they do that? Is that system in place just grown organically uh, or was that? Oh, no, I, I really do think maybe I'm wrong. You know, I've not studied it, but I've read people who've claimed this. But I think that once universities commit to racial diversity and balancing, then distinctions like this have eventually got to go by the wayside. Because what if there were racial disparities in grades? Right? What if there's racial disparities in fail rates? You know, well, the university, yeah. yeah, then the universities to cure that are just going to get rid of. So I, you know, you often hear in the public discourse, people say, oh, no, great inflation is because parents are paying too much money for college. Yeah. I don't think it's that at all. I really uh, do think it's the ideology of diversity yeah, has taken over, right? Like every time you have to take these trainings and right, you can, like, it's hard to explain to outsiders how infused the whole higher education system has become yes. with the cause of racial diversity. We've completely turned our backs on Martin Luther King. Yes. Yeah, the I whole can't. idea of colorblindness is just uh, right? right white supremacy. Who now. cares about your character? <laughs> well, yeah. how many white people? How many Chinese people? How many black people? Yeah. I, I think it's really yeah. going to undermine, you know, our university's commitment to excellence and the 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 quality of the citizen that we're squirting out into society and people that make judgments about who to vote for president and what's even going on, who has the power to uh, count the votes or to to uh what what to do on january i think that uh the great inflation i've noticed is it just seems like there's more general ignorance on what our system how it was designed what it's supposed to do basically what we've been talking about the whole hour which was you know a lot of people they used to get this in high school and i know college graduates people with master's degrees that aren't leveled up on this stuff and yes. so what you're doing is so important um, in providing us this book. Really yeah. appreciate oh, you writing it. Yeah. Oh, and I appreciate thanks. I yeah. look forward to your January 6th article as well. Oh, yeah. I'll send it along. I mean, it's uh, in progress. I mean, the, our draft yeah. is finished. We might post the draft online early because it's become such a big issue. But, you know, the way scholarly journals are, <laughs> it might be two years before it actually is in real print. Okay. So, but yeah, I'd be happy to send it along. Come back and talk about it. Yeah. I mean, yes, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well we would be you. happy to put any excerpts that you'd like. We'd be happy to put them on our website. Hey, bring John Eastman on board too. We could debate it for you. Sure. That'd be <laughs> wow, great. That's a good He's idea. A friend awesome. of mine. Yeah. I would love that's that. a great idea. That's oh, great. I'm sure he'd love to do it too. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure he would. Yeah. yeah. I've seen him go back and forth with uh, the guy. My first PhD course that I took at Claremont, which was called the presidency and the constitution and the professor was joseph Bissett. yeah joe Bissett. yeah and they you just fought him? they just debated it and they the just debated yeah they yeah. just debated so yeah i thought that was a really good exchange yeah i thought it was too and I, it's the only high level academic exchange that i saw that took both sides seriously i thought yeah. so it was nice oh, i'll definitely see. send you this article then it'll i hope yeah. i think we will post it online too in draft form Okay. So people can see all the, at least see all the evidence there is out there about this. Right. Yeah. But it's a huge issue. Uh, I'm glad we didn't say the words that start with E F because I, uh, YouTube took a video down that I had where it was a three hour conversation, long form Joe Rogan, which is what we like to do kind of style. But um, the, uh, the guy said the interviewee, which who is a film producer said the E F words uh, regarding to that election 
I just oh. said the, I just said the e word. Oh crap! <laughs> um, but so don't say the f word anywhere else here. Um, but but he happened to just mention it twice in three hours. YouTube took it down, so I'm going to appeal it. But I really? have to re-listen wow, to it. That's and incredible. See. Is that I think it was a, an automatic system that picked it up or something. Yeah. But it, they said it was misinformation about about that, and he didn't even mention the year or the office or. Anything. I guess we happened. can't talk about the election of 1876 anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's really what we're dealing with in terms of censorship. I was not happy to see <laughs> I was not happy to see that Twitter took uh, the pre- the former president off. Um, although it probably politically helps him. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I think so, actually. Yeah, it would have helped this presidency too if he had tweeted just once a day or once right, a week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John. Oh, yeah. You for uh, for coming on. We appreciate it. I'm going to stop recording now. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Oh, 